0: But anyway, I just wanted to let you know that I agree with you. I like the way we're doing it.
1: We got that on we got that on tape. Emily agrees with me.
0: I, I prefer to not wonders, be here at eleven o'clock at night still doing characters, is what I'm saying.
1: Wonders never cease. My god. I think the temperature in hell just dropped a couple degrees. We can do this all day. Episode twenty five. Avengers endgame review part one. Are you ready, partner?
0: Rock and roll, buckaroo.
1: Hi, this is Mark.
0: And this is Emily. And
1: And we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us to the end of the line it's been a minute but we're back my name is mark villa thank you for joining us today and with me as always my co-host extraordinaire emily griswold good evening emily hello haven't seen you in a while well i haven't like i haven't like seen you sort of either in person or via video chat in a while and we haven't done this in a while either we recorded infinity war but before in june, before I think? in june before either before i went on vacation and it was like wow it was like technically still spring
0: i was like late june wasn't it
1: no it was early june i was oh, away no. late June. i didn't
0: realize how long it took to put the show out
1: <laughs> it was a well we've both uh, we've both had we have both had a lot of stuff going on i was out of town for a while you were out of town for a while you've had some house guests so it's been a very very busy summer for both of us but we're back and this is, as we already indicated earlier, our review or the first half of our review of Avengers Endgame. We decided that this thing so big, this movie is so big, our review was going to be so big, we wouldn't be doing it justice, putting it all in just one, ramming everything into one episode. And we didn't feel like having to do a, record a podcast for three and a half hours. I mean, we love doing this. But
0: that's a long time.
1: That's a long, that's a long time to be. It's a long time. Especially
0: because be, we record later in the evening.
1: Yeah, that's a long, that's a long time to be, you know, sitting in a dark, sitting in a dark room at nine o'clock at night with a pair of headphones on, just you know, talking Marvel, which ordinarily I could do quite easily. But no, we wanted to pace ourselves, so you're getting the first part of a two-part review of Avengers Endgame. We've been looking forward to this for, well, I guess you could, you could kind of say we've been looking forward to doing this for two years. The podcast is now more than two years old, which is another kind of milestone in and of itself. But before we get to our review, don't want to waste any more time because we have a lot of MCU news. <laughs> well, the ticker tape machine sounded a little weird there. I think it's getting a little tired. Might have to get a new one next time. So MCU news. First of all, uh, Thor: Love and Thunder, probably on will probably be on Disney Plus by the time y'all hear this show. Um, I have seen it. Emily has not, unless there's something I don't know.
0: I have nope. not. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, it'll be interesting. I don't want to say too much since you haven't seen it yet. I'll be interested to see what you have to say. It was. I found it entertaining, but you know, not my favorite. MCU movie certainly not my not even my favorite Thor movie by a long shot.
0: I have heard one thing that could I guess be considered a spoiler, but I don't care about spoilers, you know. Um from our dear friend of the podcast, my Twitter friend who loves a certain character. And I may be saying this wrong or incorrectly that the gore the god killer
1: or the god Butcher.
0: Butcher. Either him or his tool is maybe a symbiote. Which, you know, is a symbiote. I know where you're going with this. Who else? Say it. You gotta say it. You did this to yourself.
1: I don't need to say it. You do have to say it. Why do I have to say it?
0: You have to say it.
1: For Pete's sake. Say it. Venom. (laughs) Ha!
0: See now I got it out of
1: the way. We can move along. I have the entire. This time I have the entire. I have the entire uh, uh, Gore the God Butcher arc from Jason Aaron's run on Thor. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to investigate that at some point because I. I don't know. I kind of want to call BS on that, but who knows? That's just. I I don't know everything. Who
0: has not watched the movie?
1: I don't know. I. I was. was It's. It's an entertaining movie, but it also is feels kind of. It's also kind of a silly movie. Um, probably not terribly necessary. Of course, then again, you could argue that a lot of the movies in phase four have not been terribly necessary, but, uh, I'm not going to say any more until you've seen it and we'll, then we'll talk about it later. And I'm sure, Hey, at this point, we'll probably be reviewing it sometime next year. She Hulk drops on Disney plus on August 18th. I know our show notes say the show notes say the 17th, but it's actually the 18th now. So it'll probably be almost over by the time you hear this show. Looking forward to that. Tatiana Maslany starring as Jennifer Walters. Plus we get Mark Ruffalo back as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk and the return of Tim Roth as Emil Blonsky slash the abomination. So I'm looking forward to seeing that next week. We got our trailer for black Panther Wakanda forever, which hits theaters on November the 11th of this year for all the problems that movie has had. And this is that movie is just like a cursed production, you know, from the get go. The trailer looks, I think, pretty damn good, and I am now suddenly very, very stoked to I see this no movie. I have no idea
0: what's going to happen. I feel like there wasn't a lot of plot reveal, but it looked good.
1: Well, that's the beauty of Marvel trailers. There's never much plot reveal. They tell you they tell you everything and nothing in their trailers. They do that very well. I'm not going to linger on that because there was lots of news coming out of the uh, the MCU panel at San Diego Comic-Con back in July. Uh, they basically announced the entirety of Phase 5, um, both on the small screen and the big screen. I'll go through it real quick for you. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania in theaters February 2023. Secret Invasion on Disney Plus, the series, spring 2023. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in theaters May 2023. Echo, the series on Disney Plus in summer 2023 loki season two hits disney plus in summer 2023 i know emily is probably very excited about that the marvels sequel to captain marvel in theaters in july of 2023 and it will also co-star iman Vellani, who did a fantastic job as kamala khan ms marvel in the ms marvel series that just wrapped on disney plus iron heart the series on disney plus in fall of 2023 Blade, the reboot of Blade, starring Mahershala Ali, in theaters November 2023. The series Agatha, Coven of Chaos, hits Disney Plus in the winter 2023-2024. Oh, I was so happy to hear about this. Daredevil, Born Again, a sixteen—I think he said sixteen or was it eighteen—episode season series. Excuse me, hitting Disney Plus in spring of 2024. Charlie Cox is returning as Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil. And Vincent D'Onofrio will be returning as Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. The Kingpin. Captain America, New World Order, starring Anthony Mackie as Captain America. And yes, you all heard me. Sam Wilson is Captain America. No ifs, ands, or buts. That hits theaters in May of 2024. And Thunderbolts hits theaters July 2024. Kevin Foggy also revealed three of the films from Phase 6, including Fantastic Four, which will hit theaters in November of 2024. And then he also gave us the last two films of Phase 6. We're going to get a pair of Avengers films to wrap up Phase 6, folks. Avengers, the Kang Dynasty in theaters in May of 2025. And Phase 6... The multiverse saga wraps up in November of 2025 when Avengers Secret Wars hits theaters. There are rumors that the Kang Dynasty may be directed by Dustin Cretton, who directed Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So going to keep an eye out on that and see if that turns out to be true. And now, onto the main event, the finale of the Infinity Saga, Avengers Endgame, which opened in the U.S. on April 26th. 2019 it stars robert downey jr chris evans mark ruffalo chris hemsworth scarlett johansson jeremy renner don Cheadle, paul rudd brie larson karen gillen bradley cooper and josh brolin but of course you're going to see a
0: lot
1: more other people in this movie later on the russo brothers anthony and joe who directed infinity war and captain america the winter soldier and captain america civil war returned to direct this one likewise it was written by christopher marcus and stephen mcfeely who also wrote infinity war at the box office boom the film had a budget of somewhere between 256 million and 400 million not only did it break the two billion that's billion with a b two billion dollar worldwide box office mark just like infinity war did it surpassed it by over 700 million dollars for a worldwide box office total of $2,797,800,564. That is a lot of money. It is the highest grossing Marvel film so far, and it is the second highest grossing motion picture of all time. Only James Cameron's Avatar has made more cash than Endgame.
0: I have not seen Avatar.
1: I haven't seen it in its entirety. I feel
0: like no one has seen Avatar, and yet, it is the most seen movie of all time.
1: I know a lot of people who've seen it.
0: I I just, I've ridden the ride at Disney. There's a ride at like Animal Kingdom or something.
1: I've seen about two thirds of it. Uh, I, I, and I and that was not until either this year or last year. I saw it on. I saw watched some of it on Disney Plus with my son, and I'm watching. I'm like, yeah, it looks nice, but it's basically dances with wolves in outer space i just i didn't find it particularly compelling it's kind of got it's got one of those it's a it's a message movie that's just really 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 kind of clunky and ham-fisted if you ask me although some filming for this film began in mid 2017 while principal photography on infinity war was still going on the bulk of endgame began shooting in august of that year only a few weeks after principal photography on infinity war had come to a close the russo brothers had originally envisioned shooting the films simultaneously but Kevin Foggy felt it would become too complicated having to jump back and forth between filming elements for two separate films. So they opted to do it back to back. Our overall impressions of the film, while I love Infinity War more because it's just so delightfully comic booky, I love Endgame for being different in tone overall, and I love it for being, you know, basically a movie in three acts, with each act having in and of itself A different tone. You've got, you know, the first act is the fallout of Infinity War, both, you know, tangibly and emotionally for everybody. Um, The second act is the time heist, which allows us to have kind of a different kind of adventure, and it allows us to revisit, you know, kind of the greatest hits of the MCU up to that point. And then, of course, the third and final act is that final massive all-out battle, which is just it's just pure, un- unadulterated Marvel geek joy <laughs> to me. Uh, I think it's just a fantastic finale to the Infinity Saga, a great way of wrapping up all this stuff that we've seen up until this point. And it was just such a... It, it, the movie just kind of washes over you, I think. And it was just kind of a very, very emotionally satisfying uh, climax to the Infinity Saga. Uh, I have it in my rankings at, um, at number four, just behind Infinity War and just ahead of the original Avengers movie. I can't, I have a hard time decoupling Endgame from Infinity War. They're they're kind of, you know, I know they're two separate movies, but they're so thoroughly intertwined with each other in my mind, I have to keep them together.
0: I think I agree. Because um, I put it, I think, let me check. I have Infinity War at number six, and I put Endgame at seven. And so there's a lot of stuff that just got pushed back. Like Black Widow was 7, now it's 8. The first Captain America movie was 8, now it's 9. So stuff like that. I think the reason I like this movie is aside from two scenes, and they both happen in this part of our review, (laughs) most of this movie I find really easy to rewatch. And it doesn't feel like I'm sitting there for three hours or however long this movie is. It just feels like something that you could sit down and do for an evening and not feel like you've been there for 80 million years. It was really long in theaters. I remember that. But I, it might have I- been because I watched it in the morning and I had a shift. And it was like, it ran right up to the end. And I was nearly late for work.
1: You saw it before coming to work?
0: Yeah, that was the only time I could see it. All like on the day, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I went in at like 11 and... The closing shift started at 2.30, and so I think I walked into the building at, like, 2.27, which for me is late.
1: That's dedication.
0: I wanted to know. I mean, I already kind of knew. Somehow I
1: missed that. I
0: knew a bunch of the spoilers because I had begged people to tell me because I don't care, and they're like, no, you're going to get mad at me. No, I won't. Please tell I want to know what I'm getting into. I have to know. <laughs> but I think it's really rewatchable. I think that's my overall impression of this particular film. Is that it's easier to rewatch than a bunch of the other ones. And so that's why I put it so high up. But not in the top five because I just really, those two particular scenes, I really hate. And also, I don't like how long it is.
1: I think it's the fastest three hour movie ever made. Right. It's
0: still fast, but it's still quite long.
1: It is so far the longest movie in the MCU canon. I think it clocks in, it's it's like, it's like 181 minutes from beginning to end by the time you get through the end credits, something like that. Without further ado, the film opens up on the Barton family farm where Clint is giving his daughter an archery lesson while his boys play in a field and his wife, Lara, prepares lunch at a nearby picnic table. We see an ankle bracelet on Clint. He is serving time under house arrest, as was alluded to in Infinity War. He turns his back on his family momentarily, When he turns around again his family is gone and wisps of dust can be seen floating in the air down to the ground
0: i have such a soft spot for clint barton not in a ya boy type of way but just like in a i don't know i can't explain it he's probably the one character i know the most about like i've actually gone to the comics to learn more about him and his backstory and i think we've talked about him before it's like he is the most relatable of the avengers Because he's just a dude who'd rather be at home, but instead he's got to be out here fighting superheroes. Because that's just his job. Like, that's just what it is. And, like, in this particular situation, obviously everybody lost someone or multiple someones, but Clint had to lose everyone. You know, you couldn't keep just one kid. It had to be the whole family. Like, the only thing he's ever really had. It's just, it's rude. That's all.
1: Clint I think yeah his place in the M- in the MCU he's he's the everyman of the MCU he's you know kind of the sort of the no-nonsense just sort of the no-nonsense down to earth you know other than the fact that he's like the greatest marksman in in history he's and he's got these you know ridiculous you know like assassin skills he's otherwise you know a completely down to earth kind of guy he doesn't have any weird personality quirks or anything like that he's just like you say he's like a he's just a dude after the marvel logo We cut to the Benatar, the ship of the Guardians of the Galaxy, floating in deep space. On board, Tony Stark is recording a message for Pepper Potts, recounting recent events. It has been 22 days since he and Nebula departed Titan in the Benatar. 22 days since Thanos used the Infinity Gauntlet to snap 50% of all life out of existence. During that time, Nebula has patched up the nasty stab wound inflicted by Thanos upon Tony. The ship's fuel cells apparently cracked in battle. The two of them were able to repair them enough to squeeze an extra 48 hours of flight time out of the engines, but the ship is now dead in the water, a thousand light years away from anything. Their oxygen will run out the following morning, so Tony presumes that this message will be his farewell to Pepper. He tells her he will think of her as he drifts off to sleep. He lies down on the floor of the Benatar's flight deck to sleep, possibly for the last time. After he slips into unconsciousness, Nebula picks him up and puts him into one of the crew chairs before heading below deck. Tony is suddenly roused from his slumber by a bright light emanating from the outside of the ship. At first, the source of the glow is obscured by its brightness, but in moments we see that it is none other than Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. We're only eight minutes into this three-plus-hour epic, and I already have a lot to say first off when the film first came out there was much speculation about whether or not the filmmaker's choice of the song played during the marvel logos dear mr fantasy by traffic was intended to be significant i love steve winwood it's a great song but uh, anyway here are the first several lyrics dear mr fantasy play us a tune something to make us all happy do anything take us out of this gloom sing a song play guitar make it snappy You are the one who can make us all laugh, but doing that, you break out in tears. Hmm, foreshadowing, perhaps? Second of all, what battle was the ship in that led to its fuel cells being cracked? We never saw the ship itself engaged in combat during Infinity War. Does does Tony mean the battle with Thanos on Titan? Was the ship damaged on the ground then, or, or did Tony and Nebula get into a fight sometime after they left Titan?
0: I think it was probably damaged on the ground in Titan. Just like a lot of things were damaged on Titan. I mean, didn't Thanos bring down a moon on the planet?
1: He he did. He did bring down a freaking moon on the planet. So, all right. I guess that's probably it. That makes sense. Third, I love how we're starting to see Nebula developing a kernel of compassion. What with getting Tony into the chair for, you know, I suppose, a more dignified final repose. The gentle hand she places on his shoulder before she leaves. I find that actually quite remarkable when you think about it her character has had a really compelling arc throughout the films thus far and now we're starting to see some of the you know air quotes humanity being restored to her after all those years of abuse at the hands of Thanos
0: you're over here thinking about Nebula's compassion and I'm over here thinking about how funny it was to watch Nebula learn about friendly competition via hand football or whatever that silly game is called I feel like something's off in the universe paper
1: paper football yeah yeah paper football i love I'll, that seniors. i love He's that like, nope, it's such a very innocuous
0: you could so you could just it's fine
1: i was <laughs> like what else are you gonna do your spaceship is your spaceship is dead in the water you have nothing else to do you might as well spend the rest of your days
0: i do like playing that paper a football paper with that. on the benatar who's writing who's taking notes in outer space
1: it's probably Quill's. It's probably Peter's. I mean, he's probably got some paper stashed away. There's cer- certainly some other civilization in the, in the galaxy uses paper. Either that or it's a leftover. Or it could be it could be like the, uh, the wrapping paper from his mom's tape. Maybe it's still intact. Oh, maybe. And they converted it into a football. Cut to the Avengers compound on Earth. We see Steve Rogers standing in front of a bathroom sink, having apparently just shaved off his moody emo cat beard.
0: This implies that he waited 22 whole days to ditch the beard. What was he doing until then? (laughs) Just real busy? Didn't have time to think about it?
1: Real busy trying to figure out what the hell just happened. No time to shave.
0: But now. Now there's time.
1: Now there's time.
0: Three weeks later.
1: Suddenly, the compound begins to vibrate, and a low rumble can be heard. Steve, Natasha Romanoff, Bruce Banner, Colonel James, Rhodey Rhodes, Rocket, and Pepper run outside in time to see Carol Danvers single-handedly carrying the crippled Benatar and setting it down gently outside the main building. The hatch opens and Nebula emerges, helping a fragile Tony down the ramp. Steve rushes up and Nebula hands Tony over to him. I couldn't stop him, utters Tony. Steve responds, neither could I. Tony then tells him, I lost the kid, referring, of course, to Peter Parker, to which Steve responds, we all lost. Tony and Pepper are reunited. Rocket sits down next to Nebula, and they wordlessly reach for each other's hands, comforting each other in the wake of the loss of Peter Quill, Drax, Gamora, Mantis, and Groot. Okay, we get three, count them, three major reunions here in a span of about 30 seconds. A, Tony and Steve, presumably the first time they've seen each other in person since Civil War. They're both clearly still in shock, such that their long-standing feud Won't resume just yet, although, you know, just wait until the following scene. B, Tony and Pepper. Notice how when Steve, Natasha, Rhodey, and Bruce are running outside, Pepper is already there. And C, Nebula and Rocket. I absolutely love this moment between the two of them. Rocket and Nebula don't particularly like each other, and they presumably haven't seen each other since Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but they both know what each of them has lost, and they don't need to say anything to each other. Seeing them taking each other's hand, I thought it was just such a powerful, emotional moment to me, uh, because these two kind of hate each other. (laughs) But this horrible loss has brought them together, if only for a moment. The following morning, the group briefs Tony and Nebula on what happened 23 days earlier when Thanos came to Earth, and what's happened since. Most world governments have fallen into disarray. Those that can have started taking an emergency census of the population. The results of that census have led to the conclusion that Thanos did indeed wipe out half of all living creatures. On the monitors overhead, we see images of the missing heroes and other allies move by in rapid succession. Stephen Strange, Bucky Barnes, Sam Wilson, Nick Fury, Eric Selvig, Hope Van Dyne, Sharon Carter, Wanda Maximoff, Maria Hill, Hank Pym, Scott Lang, Peter Parker, Shuri, and T'Challa. Also present at the briefing is Thor, sitting silently in a corner of the room. The surviving Avengers have been hunting Thanos for the last three weeks to no avail. It doesn't take long for Tony to reignite his beef with Cap over the Sokovia Accords and his suit of armor around the world. I needed you and you weren't there, he tells Steve angrily, before collapsing from exhaustion.
0: Hey Tony, not sure if you forgot, I know there's been trauma. T.M.? But you created Ultron to be that suit of armor around the world, which turned out, uh, very badly, one might say. Remember Sokovia? Remember how that happened because of something that you did? Thanos is Loki's fault, I'll give you that, because Loki's the one who brought Thanos to Earth. But everything else? I think that's all on Tony. And when is Tony referencing to in terms of needing Steve? Steve helped him fix all of his mistakes in Age of Ultron. Steve is the only reason Tony didn't kill Bucky out of blind fury, and oh... I'm sorry, who was Tony reluctant to call when Banner announced that Thanos was coming? Oh, was it Steve? Steve was <laughs> doing everything that he could on Earth. He can't be in two places at once. Like, I know Tony is traumatized. I get that. But was Steve supposed to know that they were on Titan? Was Steve supposed to leave Earth undefended? Like, dude.
1: I think that old habits die hard. <laughs> That's old feuds, feuds go on and on and on. And given the trauma that that everyone had experienced, I mean, it. I think that just made it even easier for Tony to to lean back on the old, the old, uh, the old excuses. See, see, this is what happens when we don't do things my way.
0: We did do things your way, and we got here. We did Ultron.
1: If you had just signed the accords, everything would have been fine. If we all would have been signed together. The accords
0: after I caused the problem.
1: No, I did. I. You're not wrong.
0: I love Tony in the first Iron Man movie. I just want to clear the air. That first Iron Man movie is still in my top five. It's still a really good movie, Marvel or no, but Tony? No. No, sir. Take it home and try again.
1: Bruce gives Tony a sedative that will knock him out for several hours, while Carol stalks off to find Thanos and kill him. As Natasha, Cap, and Rhodey try to talk her down, Nebula interrupts, imploring that she knows exactly where Thanos is. Having talked to her and Gamora for years about his grand plan, Thanos told them that once his plan to eliminate half of all life was complete, he would retreat to a planet he called the Garden. Rocket tells the group that when Thanos used the Infinity Gauntlet, it resulted in a power surge unlike any ever seen before. Until two days ago when a similar surge, picked up by deep space scans, occurred on an unidentified planet, now identified as Thanos' Garden. The surge would seem to indicate that Thanos used the Infinity Stones again for some reason. Carol and Natasha are in favor of going there and forcing Thanos to use the stones to bring everybody back, but Bruce is skeptical of their chances. Rhodey questions Carol as to where she's been all this time, to which she responds that there are lots of planets in the universe that unfortunately don't have Avengers to defend them. Thor stands up, calls for Stormbreaker, and gives the unflinching Carol a quick appraisal. I like this one, he proclaims. Of course, the final call is always going to come down to Cap. He stares at the image of the garden on the monitor and declares, Let's go get this son of a bitch. Steve, Natasha, Thor, Bruce, Rhodey, Nebula, Rocket, and Carol take the repaired Benatar to the garden planet where Thanos is living in seclusion and communing with nature, apparently. Living in a cabin and preparing meals over an open fire, we see him walking with a noticeable limp and the left side of his face and the Infinity Gauntlet on his left hand appear badly charred. Suddenly, the Avengers burst into the cabin. Carol puts him in a chokehold, and Rhodey and Bruce, back in the Hulkbuster armor, secure his arms before Thor flies in and promptly chops off the hand wearing the gauntlet. Rocket examines the gauntlet and discovers the Infinity Stones gone. Thanos says that he used the stones to destroy the stones, to prevent anyone else from using them.
0: I feel like the stones shouldn't be able to be destroyed by the stones. What's that about?
1: Um, Thanos used the stones to wipe out half of all life in the universe. Having them wipe themselves out should be a walk in the park.
0: <laughs> I just feel like if I were an infinity stone, right? Imagine that. You're an infinity stone. Wouldn't you have a fail safe so that you don't get destroyed? <laughs>
1: um.
0: Just, yeah, like put yourself in the... In the space of an infinity stone.
1: Isn't that a great... That's a great icebreaker question. If you were an infinity stone, which one would you be?
0: I'd be the time stone. But I would also put in a failsafe to not let myself be destroyed by myself.
1: Fair enough. You think the time stone could just go back in time and... Right? Mm, Oh, gee, maybe you're onto something here. Thor then promptly decapitates Thanos. I went for the head, he says knowing full well that it's all for naught, before silently walking out of the cabin. The other Avengers stand in disbelief as the realization sinks in that Thanos has won. I love the way Thor says, I went for the head. He just kind of croaks it out very weakly because he knows that killing Thanos at this point does absolutely nothing, and that he is, once again, too late.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, revenge isn't always sweet, etc., etc.,
1: The film then jumps ahead in time by five years. New York City is quiet, accentuated by shots of an empty city field and a parking lot full of abandoned cars, and lots of boats junked up near the Statue of Liberty. Steve Rogers is facilitating a support group for survivors of the snap, telling them that they have to move on because the world is in our hands. A couple of quick notes first. The guy talking about his date is, of course, co-director Joe Russo. The bald guy with the glasses is Jim Starlin, the legendary comic book writer and artist who, among other things, co-created Thanos, Drax, Gamora, and Shang-Chi, and who wrote the Infinity Gauntlet miniseries, upon which much of the MCU's Infinity Saga is based. This scene is a nice callback to Winter Soldier, as it would appear that Steve has decided to honor the memory of Sam Wilson by running a support group, just like he did. Which makes total sense because that's what Steve Rogers does best inspire people and yet it's pretty obvious as he's giving his arousing pep talk to these people that maybe he's not convinced of what he himself is saying. There's that look of doubt when he says you got to move on because you know the look on his face demonstrates that clearly he has not.
0: What are the chances that someone made it out without losing anybody? or at the very least not losing someone from their immediate circle. Someone has to have done the numbers on this.
1: You're the statistics person. You haven't done that yet?
0: No, those numbers are too big. I don't sh- I don't do statistics in the billions.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it's statistically possible that someone didn't lose anybody. Probably probably pretty slim, you know. I don't know. I wonder if that's that'd be a great that'd be like a great comic book one-shot. Or a good the, question
0: to ask at like Comic Con or something.
1: The person who didn't Yeah, yes, yeah, yes yeah. ask the ask the Marcus You're like, and
0: Nick Feely.
1: <laughs> Is there anyone who didn't lose anybody? Cut to a storage facility in San Francisco, where a cage like unit bearing the name Lang contains, among other items, the XCON van. A rat crawling across the dashboard inadvertently presses some buttons that activate the portable quantum tunnel that Scott Lang was testing along with Hank Pym, Hope Van Dyne, And Janet Van Dyne five years earlier, when the snap dusted the latter three and stranded Scott in the Quantum Realm. There's a jolt of energy as Scott, now back to normal size, is violently ejected from the tunnel and out the back of the van. He starts making his way, on foot, to the house of Maggie, Paxton, and Cassie. Along the way, he notices the post apocalyptic state of the world abandoned cars, trash everywhere, and lots of posters for missing persons he is completely unaware of what has transpired over the last five years. He winds up in Golden Gate Park, which now houses a memorial of seemingly hundreds of stone monoliths, all containing names of, quote, the Vanished. He hurriedly goes to the section containing the L's, hoping desperately not to find Cassie's name listed, which he does not. He does, however, find his own name listed. He runs to the house where Cassie lives, bangs on the door and furiously rings the doorbell. A teenage Cassie comes to the door and the two have an emotional reunion. I've talked about this on the show before. This might be my favorite scene of the entire film. Uh, I also think it's Paul Rudd's finest moment in the MCU thus far. The way the look on his face changes over the course of the, whatever, 30, 35 seconds of that scene when he sees Cassie, he has this look of utter astonishment and disbelief, which continues for a few seconds after he starts hugging her. And then, when that realization sets in that this is, in fact, his daughter and that she's alive, he looks like he's about to cry. Maybe te- tears of joy that she's alive, but, you know, I'm guessing also perhaps some sadness that he's missed five years of his daughter's life. But then he pulls back. And he gives us that, you know, kind of wonderful, goofy, half-smiling, half-crying face with the, you know, you're so big line. Uh, it's such a wonderful, beautiful moment from Paul Rudd and Emma Furman, Especially, you know, when the movie so far has been nothing but 25 minutes of near total despair. Cut to the Avengers compound where Natasha has apparently taken charge. We see her on a holographic conference call with Nebula, Rocket, Okoye, Carol, and Rhodey. Nebula and Rocket are reporting on a warship that turned out to be just a garbage scowl. Okoye informs her that a recent underwater tremor near the African plate is not a big deal. <coughs> Namor. <coughs> and Carol says she's not going to be back on Earth for a while because hundreds of planets are going through what Earth's going through. When the others drop off the call, Rhodey stays behind to inform Natasha that Clinton Barton just straight up butchered a bunch of cartel guys in Mexico and that he's been doing similar things over the last few years. After Rhody hangs up, Steve Rogers walks in to talk. He points out to her that while he's been telling everybody that they have to move on, he realizes that people like them can't. Natasha responds by saying that if she moves on, who does this? Steve wonders whether this needs to be done now. Natasha says that this job this family changed her for the better and that she has to continue doing it so that she keeps getting better, even with so many people now gone. That brief look of anguish from Natasha in the few seconds between the call with Rody and Steve's arrival, it's a rare moment of despair from the Black Widow. This whole thing has clearly affected her too. She's lost friends, she's lost family, Spoiler alert for the Hawkeye series, we now know that Yelena Belova blipped. We're not used to seeing that kind of vulnerability from Natasha. And I find it kind of refreshing to be reminded that she is, after all, a human being just like the rest of us.
0: I wish we could talk about the Hawkeye series here, because seeing Natasha be this sad over Yelena and Clint pairs so well with seeing Yelena and Clint be so sad about Natasha, It also hits so much harder now that we've seen Natasha's movie and we know where she was at this point and what's been going on outside of the cat movies and the other Avengers movies. Like in the order that we're watching them and we get to know why aside from just Clint like she's clearly very upset about her best friend going down this path but also we know even more.
1: I think that's what one of the things that that, uh, the Black Widow movie did really well it's you and I may have said this in our review, I can't remember, I, I know a good friend of mine uh, uh, said this once too. It makes you really, you know, it re- makes you really appreciate uh, the Black Widow movie. It made you appreciate where she was in Endgame because, yeah, it just kind of shows you just sort of there's this, this sort of trans, I don't know if transition is the right word, but they're just sort of a, sort of a, a mantle of response. There's this, 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 I mean, she's always been kind of, you know, responsible or, you know, she's been so concerned with, you know, getting the red out of her ledger. You know, she does have sort of her own personal mission, but it, it, it kind of takes on a different, a different dimension as we get into like infinity war and end game. There's, there's, you know, it's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of her trying to get the blood off of her hands. By saving people, it's almost like the, the emphasis has really moved from her to everyone else. She feels a responsibility to the world, to the universe, and that's why she takes, you know, she's basically leading the Avengers now, and she takes that extraordinarily seriously. Steve and Natasha are shocked to discover, moments later, Scott Lang, of all people, standing at the front gate with the X-Con van, all the way from San Francisco. He explains to them that, right before the snap, he had shrunk down to a very small size and had been transported into the quantum realm, and then brought back five years later. Only it wasn't five years for him. It was only five hours for him. Time, apparently, works differently in the quantum realm. And Scott wonders if it is possible to enter the quantum realm at a specific place and at a specific time, and emerge from it in a different place at a different time, i.e., Could they go back in time to sometime before Thanos and retrieve the Infinity Stones for themselves? The problem is that they don't currently know how to navigate that precisely in the Quantum Realm. The three of them visit Tony, who has essentially retired to an isolated home on a lake along with Pepper and their daughter Morgan, and ask him if what Scott has discussed is even possible. Tony tells them it isn't, especially if they don't want to screw things up even more than Thanos already has. Quantum physics, he says, is unpredictable, and he's not willing to risk what he has now, his wife, his daughter, to save those who they've all lost. And so Tony's dream, which he talked to Pepper about in the beginning of an Infinity War, has apparently come true. They have a daughter, and she's named after Pepper's Uncle Morgan.
0: I know I just said a bunch of mean stuff about Tony, and he deserves it. I'm not taking any of it back. However, I do really love domestic dad Tony. And this is one of the few times that Tony's behavior has made sense to me, because he's got Morgan and Pepper, and he finally has everything that he's wanted, but I think Tony is kind of not obliged, necessarily, but he should help. He has the means and the ability, and he's dedicated himself to protecting humanity before. You can't just duck out because you changed your mind.
1: I think this is kind of a weird... Tony's in kind of a weird intermediary stage here. He's not... He's not hair trigger, he's not hair trigger bitter at, say, you know Steve like he was exactly five years earlier. But he still is kind of maybe he in, in some ways, you know, I think maybe he's maybe he had maybe he tricked himself into believing that he had moved on easier than Steve did. Um, you know, he's got pepper, he's got Morgan. and you know so he's kind of got a good reason just duck out and settle down. And, you know, I I agree with you. He's, there is a lot of, there's some logic to this. It kind of makes sense. Hey, I've got a good thing going here. I don't want to screw things up. I can kind of understand that. It would be, it might be, you know, while we certainly, you know, want the heroes to do what they have to do to try to bring everybody back, there's nothing wrong with, you know, at least pointing out the pragmatism, you know, or pointing out, hey, you do realize there's a chance we could really, really screw things up badly. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it was, prudent for tony to point that out but you know by the same token yeah i think he has kind of i think he's sort of deluded himself into thinking that he's moved on when of course he hasn't
0: and that it wasn't his fault so he's fine
1: and <laughs> well
0: it's everybody else's fault
1: well uh, to his to his credit you know he didn't bring up he didn't bring up the suit of armor around the world at that point you know in the cabin scene i think he just kind of hey i've said my piece I'm not going to do this. I don't think it's possible. You're welcome to stay for lunch. You know, it's kind of, you know, all right, it's good to see you guys, but, you know, I really don't want to, you know, talk about that. With Tony refusing to help, the trio then decide to try asking Bruce Banner, who has now assumed the Hulk's large form, but retains Banner's intelligence, voice, and personality. He's unsure it can be done and admits that it's not really within his realm of expertise, But then Natasha reminds him that there was a time when his current state of being seemed pretty impossible, too. And now Emily is going to tell us why she absolutely loves this scene.
0: (laughs) I absolutely hate this scene. It's so cringy. It gives me, like, secondhand embarrassment. when I I watched it for the episode of the podcast, but normally I skip over this whole scene. Like, it's just i agree with valkyrie later when she says like i think i liked you either of the other ways right (laughs) just pick one i don't care which one you pick just be one of those and don't be this this weird middle ground i don't yeah that i don't like the bit with the kids and scott being like oh do you want a picture with me i'm ant-man i know you know ant-man and like no they don't because hulk is famous now like what's i don't what's happening (laughs) This is the part of the movie, the first time I saw it, where I felt like I was in a fever dream for a second. It kind of felt like because (laughs) the reality stone exists and the time stone exists that, like, maybe we were all imagining this. And, like, (laughs) at the end of the movie, actually, we were going to wake up and it was going to be the dream of some little kid. And this particular scene made that come to life for me where I thought, what? What are we doing? This can't be real.
1: Well, I (laughs) think... I, I yeah yeah clearly Bruce is a celebrity now. Well he was probably all the, the Hulk the Hulk was always a celebrity. And we saw that, you know. We saw that way back in at the you know towards the very end of Avengers when the kids are talking about, you know, oh he's all oh, he's big and green and all that stuff. So we know the Hulk is a thing. We know the Hulk is a popular thing. So I bet you, you know, sort of a talking Hulk who's smart and articulate and stuff like that is probably pretty darn popular too and clearly in the time that all this happened he became a celebrity and no one remembers ant-man because as he's been scott's been gone for five years those kids were like they, they would have been like what like three three years old five years old when uh ant-man was last seen it's not a great scene but i don't it's know it didn't, didn't make i don't like didn't it. Make me...
0: it makes me feel gross and weird
1: didn't make me feel uncomfortable
0: it makes me feel un- I get a lot of secondhand embarrassment from TV shows and movies and this is a big
1: one. I do too but that's not I do too but that's not one of them to, I'd have to actually think about one that I'd have to think about a scene that embarrasses me let me work on that one night shortly thereafter Tony comes across a photo of him and Peter Parker which moves him to just for the heck of it see if he can figure out a way to make time travel through the quantum realm possible Much to his great astonishment, he does. He tells Pepper and insists that he can stop the train right then and there if they, read, she, wants. But she tells him that she's never figured out how to stop him, and that while the two, three, of them got really lucky, a lot of other people obviously didn't. And would he be able to rest if he didn't pursue this? First of all, I love you three thousand. Second of all, welcome back Pepper Potts. (laughs) You appear to not be a whiny irritating little brat anymore. Seriously, do you think that this was Tony's not so subtle way of asking Pepper's permission to do this incredibly dangerous thing?
0: Uh, Definitely. I think they've both grown, too, because Pepper knows slash believes at least that she can't stop him, but Tony knows now that he's got more than enough reason to stop and Like he said, put it in a lockbox and drop it in the lake. You know, like we said, like he chose this. He chose his family over being a superhero, at least at the time. And I think, at least for a while, he would have let it go. You know, if Pepper had said, I don't want you to do this, you're not doing it. I think maybe instead of like a couple of days, it would have been like a month that he would have been able to hold it off.
1: Well, the the Peter Parker reminder uh, certainly certainly helps because we know it it's pretty obvious that 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 fires his guilt more than anything else. He absolutely is just crushed crushed by losing Peter. Absolutely crushed by losing Peter. I mean we talked about I think we talked during our it was the, it was either the Civil War review or it was probably the Spider-Man Homecoming review how it just kind of seemed, you know, what the I was I think I asked the question like what the heck was Tony thinking you know bringing this teenage kid, you know, To fight half the Avengers, you know, halfway around the world. Uh, You know, that's really, really reckless. And I think it's kind of like, you know, this has finally happened. And Tony is like, uh, he, it's like he realizes, wow, this is, this is my fault. You know, I, because, you know, yeah, I did something really, really reckless and now this kid is gone. With Tony having refused to cooperate. Bruce, Steve, and Natasha attempt to send Scott a week into the past and return him by way of the quantum tunnel in the x van. While they appear to be successful in the strictest sense, they initially bring him back at three completely different ages than what he was when he departed before the present-day Scott Lang returns. It appears that they will have to go back to the drawing board when Tony arrives, sporting the solution to their problem, time-space GPS devices. He thus agrees to go along with Scott's time heist plan. So long as it's understood that the plan is to bring everybody back without sacrificing what they have now and preferably not die in the process. With that, Tony and Steve shake hands and reconcile. Tony goes to the trunk of his car and retrieves a new shield that he fashioned specifically for Steve. And this was the point at which all of the Tony Steve shippers let out a collective sigh of relief. (laughs) Also, Time travel, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie.
0: The great news about fan fiction is that you can just say, Canon, who's she? And make your own stuff. (laughs) So they would have been fine, I think. (laughs)
1: Canon, who's she? Oh my god. going to remember that. Bruce and Rocket fly to Tunsberg, Norway, now aka New Asgard, the new home of the Asgardian people, to try and convince Mm -hmm. Thor to join them on the mission to retrieve the stones. They are greeted by Valkyrie upon their arrival. She warns them not to expect a warm welcome from Thor, who has become a bit of a recluse and only shows up in town once a month when he needs more beer. They enter Thor's house and find Korg and Meek sitting on the couch, playing Fortnite and eating pizza. And then they see Thor. He's gained a considerable amount of weight, is now sporting a rather slovenly appearance, and seems not to do much besides drink, eat, and lounge around all day. While he is initially glad to see his friends, he becomes withdrawn and despondent at the mere mention of Thanos, and refuses to even accompany them back to the Avengers compound. That is until Rocket tells him that there is beer on the ship. I do love the Fortnite scene. Thor, Thor, that kid's back. He just called me a dickhead. <laughs> as the father of a, as the father of a die-hard video gamer, I just find that really. Amusing. Noob noob Master 69 harassing Thor and uh, Korg in Fortnite. But I have mixed feelings about this scene. On the one hand, yeah, I got a laugh out of the irony of seeing the God of Thunder reduced to an unflattering shadow of himself. Certainly not the shirtless Chris Hemsworth scene I imagine most people were hoping to see in this film. But I can also see how it could appear to some to be kind of an insensitive and clunky approach to dealing with grief, not to mention fat shaming.
0: Thank goodness we're done with the two worst scenes in this movie, is all I have to say.
1: This was number two for you? This
0: was number two. Mostly for the fat shaming bit. Because they, I. There are plenty of ways that you can show that someone's, like, let themselves go, air quotes. Plenty of ways to say. Somebody's having a hard time that don't involve doing that to Thor.
1: I do still like the scene because of the Fortnite bit, but but I I agree. I also don't
0: like Meek and Korg, whatever their names. I think those guys are weird.
1: You've always told me that. I'll tell you the one thing I didn't—the one thing I I didn't notice before. All the times I've seen this film, and I never noticed it. When when Korg does the oh, the kids back, he just called me a dickhead. You see Meek throw a slice of pizza at the TV because you know they first walk in and Meek is eating pizza, which I think is kind of funny. There's this is little purple slug on the couch. With, a, with like a New York slice in his mouth, and then when the the kid starts picking on starts picking on Korg, he chucks a slice at the TV. I had never noticed that before. I just thought that was kind of funny. I never entirely understood stood why you disliked Korg and Meek so much. I mean, I know you like Taika Waititi a lot, so I just sort of figured that by default you would like Korg, but apparently not.
0: I just think they're weird. <laughs> I don't really have a good reason. I just, they feel weird.
1: Cut to Tokyo, where we see a Quinjet landing in the city. In a very seedy-looking part of town, we witness a scene of absolute carnage. Lots of bodies lying around, as a hooded figure proceeds to systematically take down scores of armed goons. He ultimately ends up facing down his intended target, a man named Akihiko, in the rain-drenched street, mano a mano, each armed with a katana. Akihiko asks why he is doing this, to which the figure replies, You survived. Half of the planet didn't. They got Thanos, you get me. They duel, but the figure dispatches Akihiko rather quickly and brutally. The camera peels back to show Natasha standing several feet behind the figure, who is revealed to be Clint Barton. After briefly confronting him with what he's been doing the last couple of years, she tells Clint that there's now a chance that they might be able to bring everybody back, including his family. He's reluctant at first, don't give me hope, but ultimately goes with her. Wow. I think no other relationship in the MCU works better for me than Natasha and Clint. Everything about it feels very believable and accessible to me. And as much as I love this movie and love the Hawkeye series, there's a small part of me that has a hard time believing that so many people are willing and able to overlook what Clint has done. The Avengers apparently welcome him back to the fold pretty easily. Unless Natasha and Rhodey were were the only ones who knew and and kept their mouths shut. Didn't think of that till just now. But Natasha forgiving him? It just makes sense to me. It just feels like something that she would do.
0: I mean, a lot of people overlooked that he technically worked for Loki, or worked with Loki. Under mind control, of course, but he did. And a lot of people have overlooked Bucky. Granted, not the people who should. (laughs) Tony. But I guess I get your point, since Clint isn't under anyone else's control, but also there's so much going on post-snap, do they really have time to worry about a masked vigilante? Like, as long as he's not going after the people that they like, I bet a lot of people, if they know, are just sort of, eh.
1: Well, I just sort of figured it's been five years, and it certainly sounds like, you know, the world is doing its best to move on and, you know, resume as close to a normal as close a life as close to normal as they possibly can and that would include you know stopping hooded vigilantes from going around murdering people
0: but sometimes hooded vigilantes just exist well, in that's this universe true. that's just a thing that you have to deal with sometimes <laughs> i will say i did notice you when we saw scott earlier and the street had all those like crummy cars and the trash and everything looked like no one had been there for a while Tokyo still looks really like orderly and clean.
1: I don't know. That street looked pretty. That street looked pretty. Murder
0: that he was doing, but like there was a train running in the background that I saw. A lot of the cars were like nicely parked.
1: Were they? I thought I I saw a lot of. I thought I. I thought I saw a lot of. I thought I saw a lot of junked cars there too.
0: I think it just looked less bad in Tokyo. I don't know if it's because it's a bigger city, so more people. Made it. I mean, mm, because it be. it's not fifty percent of every city; it's fifty percent of the population. So, yeah. there could have been a lot. Places could have been more fine than others.
1: Yeah, it's like like Tokyo could have been Tokyo could have been relatively spared while you know, hack and sack New Jersey got completely wiped out. You
0: yeah. Know?
1: And so the Avengers are back in business. Tony and Rocket are assembling a large quantum tunnel platform in the hangar and Bruce, Scott, and Rhodey are testing out new suits for quantum-level time travel that utilize what's left of the precious PIM particles. They have enough particles for each team member to make one round trip plus two test runs. In his nervousness, Scott accidentally expends one vial, so they now only have enough for one test run, and he doesn't quite feel up to it. So Clint volunteers to do it. While they're prepping him, Rhodey and Scott ask why they can't just go back in time and kill baby Thanos, or why taking the stones away before Thanos gets them doesn't just automatically bring everybody back. Bruce explains that, despite what's in movies and TV, time travel doesn't work like that. When you go into the past, that past becomes your future, and your former present is now your past, which now can't be changed by your new future
0: hulk know how time travel works if no one's done it before <laughs> like the only examples that we have are the movies i think i might be on Rody's side
1: uh, well i th- <laughs> he may not be uh, quantum physics may not be bruce banner's specialty but I, I like to think that he probably knows more about how time travel works than i do
0: but if nobody's done it you just have theoreticals
1: well, Hulk's theoreticals are probably, are probably I probably trust Hulk's theoreticals more than other people's facts. All right, I'm, I'm assuming Clint's doing this because he has a death wish, right? Do you think that's what's going on here?
0: I don't think so. I think he's sort of the opposite of Tony in the sense that, like, Tony's not willing to risk what he has because he has what Clint had before. But Clint is willing to risk everything for what he used to have. So I think... He's like, oh, you know, I don't, have, I don't have anything else to lose. But it could work, so if it, if it works, or if it kind of works, why not?
1: Second, it goes without saying that I love this scene because it's a beautiful shout-out to geekdom everywhere. I also love the, I love the conviction with which Rhodey defends his belief that because it's in the movies, it must be true. This, this is known. <laughs> they send Clinton back to his farm sometime before Thanos he picks up a baseball glove belonging to one of his kids on the back porch. He hears his daughter's voice coming from inside the house and tries to go inside to see her, but is yanked back to the present, with the glove, before he can get in the house. Okay, here's my big beef. Whose bright idea was it to send an emotionally unstable Clint Barton back in time to the place where his now-vanished family is? I mean, that's like, That's like sending Batman back in time to the night his parents were murdered before his very eyes so he can retrieve his mom's fallen string of pearls. That said, notice how Clint is obviously shaken by the near encounter with his family upon his return. But it's like once he realizes that it worked, you can almost see this really slight glimmer of hope on his face.
0: I think since they're so new to the time travel stuff, maybe they didn't know. Or they needed to go back to a time that was just before Thanos to make sure that it would work, especially since he used the time stone as part of the set of stones from the snap that maybe they thought the time the time stone might interfere with their time travel. I don't think they would, would intentionally try to traumatize Clint. He was just the only person they could use, and it just so happened that before Thanos, that's where he was. You know, it still hurts, but...
1: But it's like they had to have, they had to have a destination of some sort in mind. You can't just, oh, I'm going to send you somewhere on Earth in the year 2017. I mean, yeah, you could end up on the Barton Farm, you could end up in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They had to have given him something. And then besides the whole point of this this mission is to go back to specific points in time. You're, they should be practicing trying to send Clint to a specific place. Well, I think they point did. In Maybe time. they just didn't know. Why like, would you Why that? would you send him there of all places, where you know he's going to be? You know, the moment he sees his kids, he's gonna freaking lose it.
0: Well, maybe I just they thought didn't that was know that bad the would be there. Like, you go on errands sometimes, or you go to school. Maybe they thought know, that they like, wouldn't be there.
1: Send him to send him to Budapest or something like that. I don't know. I don't. know. I just still think that was a very, very questionable decision, especially since <laughs> they know that you know or at least somebody probably knows that Clint at least at the very least Natasha and Rhodey know that Clint Barton has spent the last few years going around, you know, vigilante mass murdering people. He's, uh, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of a, a few fries short of a happy meal at this point. So I just don't think that was a good call. Now that they have figured out how to do time travel, the Avengers begin the process of meticulously planning where and when to retrieve each infinity stone from, except for Scott, each of them has had a close encounter with at least one stone. They have to be meticulous since they each have enough only enough pim Particles for one round trip. So they use their knowledge of the stones to map out places and dates where they know the stones will be. Once they figure out those details, they are ready to proceed with the mission. Thor and Rocket will go to Asgard in 2013 to retrieve the Ether slash Reality Stone. Clint, Natasha, Rhodey, and Nebula will head to Vormir and Morag in 2014 to get the Soul and Power Stones, and the rest of the team will go to New York in 2012 to bring back the Mind, Space, and Time Stones. Outfitted with quantum suits, and with Clint carrying the miniaturized Benatar, they gather at the giant quantum tunnel in the hangar and depart for their various destinations after Steve gives them all one of his signature arousing speeches.
0: I really love this scene. It feels so normal. And you know how I how I always want, like, domestic versions of the Avengers? Like, somewhere between the action hero stuff and Clint Barton's farm life, I feel like this scene fits that mold. I also like how Tony so easily shifted from his, like, soft dad vibes into his old Playboy self. <laughs> like, he's got those tinted glasses on and, like, the the sweater. Like, I don't know why the sweater feels like it's not, dad but feels more like his old self and he even his demeanor has switched back to the old iron man self and natasha scarlett johansson anyway is also a lefty
1: you know, i hadn't noticed that
0: i noticed so. it just when we were watching it oh,
1: i'm surprised you didn't notice it sooner
0: i may have noticed it before and just didn't think about it until now but welcome to the club
1: you know the moment even going back further than that the moment you know when after the, after they you know turn scott into a baby. And you know, Steve steps outside, presumably to just get a breath of fresh air. You know, to figure out, you know, what the hell are we going to do next? And you know, Tony comes speeding up in that you know that uh, that Audi E-tron car, and he yeah, he, he kind of passes. Definitely
0: like old Tony. Now. It's like old
1: Tony. i mean, he starts speeding like a speed demon under the parking lot. He like passes. He overshoots. Steve uh, has to
0: like st- Steve
1: by a few reverse. feet. Then he ba- <laughs> he backs up, and he's kind of you know he's kind of while he's backing up, he's looking like directly at Steve with the shades on and everything and just kind of being, you know, too cool for school. It's almost like he feels empowered to be, he, it's like he misses old Tony. And it's like, Hey, I get to do this again. And it's like, I missed this all this time. So it's almost like he feels a certain liberation because he hasn't been able to be, he's had to be responsible dad and husband, Tony for the last five years. And now, you know, in addition to perhaps bringing everybody back and saving the universe, he gets to be a bit of his old self again, and I think he's relishing that. If you think about it, also, uh, the beauty of this whole planning phase is that they could actually take as much time as they need. It's not like the past is going anywhere, and at this point, they have no reason to believe that some past version of Thanos is onto them. And I think it's kind of fun, too, watching them all essentially you know, having casual office meetings to plan the mission. you, know, you got Tony with his coffee... Bruce with his Ben and Jerry's, which if you look closely, it's the Hunka Hulka burnin' fudge that was referenced by Wong in Infinity War. And, you know, the rest of the teams got their Chinese takeout, and you got all these notepads and books strewn all over the place. And I love the bit with Natasha, Tony, and Bruce, where, you know, Nat's like, So who was this Timestone guy? And Bruce says, Doctor Strange. And Nat says, What kind of doctor was he exactly? And Tony, without missing a beat, says, Ear, nose, throat meets rabbit from hat. <laughs> It also goes without saying that I love the departure scene. The overly dramatic, slow walk into the hangar. Cap's brilliant, this is the fight of our lives speech. Of course, looking back now, it really hurts to hear Natasha say, see you in a minute. Team one, Steve, Tony, Bruce, and Scott, arrives in New York City in 2012, smack dab in the middle of the Battle of New York. Loki's Chitauri invasion as seen in Avengers. Bruce heads to the Sanctum Sanctorum where he finds the Ancient One defending it from Chitari invaders who just got a bit too close. He tells her he's looking for Doctor Strange, and she replies that he's about five years too early. He sees the Eye of Agamotto around her neck and tells her he needs to take it from her. When he attempts to do so, she pushes Bruce's astral form, which appears as all-human Bruce, out of his body.
0: I've had one out-of-body experience, and I gotta say, I don't want to do that again. No thanks. Zero out of ten. I would not recommend the experience, especially when someone like the Ancient One is going to cause it.
1: Team 2, Thor and Rocket, arrives on Asgard in 2013, shortly before Malekith and his Dark Elves invade. Jane Foster is here, having been possessed by the Aether. The plan is for Thor to distract her while Rocket uses a device to suck the Ether out of her. Thor, already on edge about having to confront Jane, sees his mother from a distance. He knows that she is only hours, maybe minutes, away from her death at the hands of Malekith, and begins to have an all-out panic attack. Rocket, with all of the gentleness you'd expect from him, reminds Thor of what's at stake, including the lives of Groot, Quill, Drax, and Mantis. Thor, still panic-stricken, runs off.
0: I gotta say, I like Rocket's approach. As someone who has had panic attacks and deals with this kind of stuff, I hate it when people are really kind and nice. Um, Like, you know, just smack me in the face, tell me I'm being a dummy, and give me something actionable to do. Like, I feel like I need a rocket in my life.
1: And this, folks, is why it is a minor miracle that after all the time that we've known each other, Emily and I have not killed each other (laughs) at this point in time, because...
0: I just need a plan. Like, if you give me a plan, then I can focus on the plan. And then I'm not focusing on being freaked out anymore.
1: Emily just loves <laughs> Emily you 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 love you love abrasive touch tough love approaches. It works. And I and I don't.
0: <laughs> Cuz the more you like, oh poor baby, the more you like pat me on the back, the more I'm going to think about the thing that's happening. No.
1: Well, I'm not saying, okay. First of all, first of all, in the middle of an emergency situation, yes. I mean, in Rocket's case, yeah, there's a lot of stake. I state. think
0: in every situation it works for me.
1: In this situation, Rocket is absolutely right. You got it you you need there's just no time. There's no time for that. But I'm not saying you have to baby the person. I mean that's like, you know, when a little when a little kid falls down, the early only reason they start crying is because, you know, the grown up or whatever starts going, Oh, are you okay? Yeah. And the kid's like, Oh, am I supposed to it's cry? It's the okay. adult
0: version of that.
1: I prefer a, I don't I prefer need to be a,
0: soothed. I need to I, be firmly pointed in the right direction.
1: Okay. Well, I'm just on the for the record, I always need to be soothed, so <laughs> always go soft on me. I I, I, don't mind, I don't mind being coddled. Not one damn bit. <laughs> because not everybody responds well to that. They've, uh, they've done studies about that. Like, I couldn't tell you who did it. I just know I've read stuff. Team 3, Rhodey, Nebula, Natasha, and Clint arrive on Morag in 2014. They re-enlarge the Benatar and use it to lower a transport pod to the surface. Natasha and Clint then depart in the Benatar for Vormir. Again, looking back now, that final hug between Natasha and Rhodey, and Rhodey telling her and Clint to watch each other's six, gotta say, it's a little hard to watch. But also seeing the looks on Natasha's and Clint's faces as the Benatar makes the jump to Vormir, that's kind of priceless to me too. That They're you know two best friends together again on the adventure of a lifetime in outer space. Clint even quips, this is a long way from Budapest. And it's just kind of a, it's memorable to me because it's, you know, it's the last moment of pure joy that the two of them are ever going to have together. So it's kind of joyful and sad all at the same time. Elsewhere in 2014, Gamora and Nebula are quelling resistance on a planet just conquered by Thanos. Nebula has gotten herself into a bit of a bind, not for the first time apparently, and has to be rescued by Gamora. Gamora informs Nebula that Thanos has located an Infinity Stone on Morag. They both ponder the realization that their father's grand plan is starting to come together. Thanos arrives and tells them to report to Ronan the Accuser's ship, which is headed for Morag to get the Power Stone. Suddenly, a flash of light emanates from Nebula's head, and she doubles over in pain. When she gets up, a holographic projection starts emanating from her eye. Future Nebula's conversation with Rhodey on Morag indicating that they are waiting to get the Power Stone and that they aren't the only ones looking for it. The projection then shuts off and Gamora tells Thanos that her synaptic drive was probably damaged in battle. Thanos orders Nebula brought to his ship.
0: Thanos is just awful. And we haven't even seen the worst of him yet. And I've already complained about him for a whole podcast episode.
1: I'm surprised it took you this long to say something about him i know we haven't seen much of him him. i know but uh, but even then i just sort of figured you'd find a way to shoehorn
0: well and nothing has (laughs) changed everything that stands it's just gonna get worse
1: in 2012 new york tony and a shrunken scott sneak into stark tower just as the 2012 avengers are apprehending loki in tony's office and just as shield slash hydra agents brock rumlow jasper sitwell and the strike team arrive to take possession of Loki's scepter, which of course contains the Mind Stone. Scott stows away on 2012 Tony, who is transporting the Tesseract, the Space Stone, down the main elevator with the captured Loki and the rest of the Avengers, save Hulk, who is forced to take the stairs down. In a beautiful callback to one of our favorite scenes from Winter Soldier, 2023 Cap, masquerading as 2012 Cap, surprises Sitwell and the strike team, by boarding the elevator partway down. He tells them that Secretary Alexander Pierce has ordered him to take point on the scepter and that they need to hand it over to him. Sitwell prepares to call Pierce to verify the order while the rest of the strike team prepares to take down Cap. Cap then leans over to Sitwell's ear and whispers, Hail Hydra! Moments later, Cap exits the elevator with the scepter as Sitwell and the strike team stare at him in bewilderment. You know, I feel like I need to say something here, but I don't know what. I mean, what else is there to say? It's a fantastic callback to our favorite MCU movie.
0: Wasn't there a big dust-up regarding the comics in recent years where they made Cap evil? Like, it was like Hydra Cap?
1: Yes, uh, Nick Spencer's uh, Secret Empire right. miniseries, and the
0: whole thing ended up just being like he was playing at being Hydra to get intel or something. Because I feel like it was probably because they received so much pushback from the fans.
1: Well, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was. I I haven't read Secret Empire, but it was like that. Actually, was it was like like the real the real Cap was like shunted off into some pocket of space time, like a parallel universe, mm-hmm. and had to fight his way back. And somehow he got replaced with. Hydra cap. I don't know. Yeah, it was a big Nick Spencer. It was Nick a big Spen- dust
0: up. I remember that. It was a big
1: dust up. I like I like Nick Spencer as a writer, but he does often he does sometimes like to he kind of likes to he likes poke to the poke eye. the he likes to poke the bear. You know, he likes to. He's one of the types. He's he's kind of you know kind of like you know like the stuff that Taika Waititi has said recently. You know, or during the Thor Love and Thunder press junkets, where it's like, oh yeah, I just love to I love to go and I love to go troll the fans and just basically. Flip off continuity, and Nick Spencer sometimes can do that. He kind of likes to be, he likes to be controversial, and just kind of do stuff like that to get the fans riled up. And there was a big brouhaha about it. I I didn't think it was a big deal because I think we all knew that like real Cap was coming back. But um.
0: But I wonder if anyway. this was part of it, like if this was a nod to people and be like, look, haha, J.K. He's good. It's all for the better good. But oh, I think I'm... it was def,
1: it was definitely a nod to Secret Empire. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But now I'm thinking, so this is technically the future, right? because if you go into your past your past becomes your future. So 2012 cap didn't have this experience because it was 2023 cap. but does that mean that 2012 strike team didn't have this experience My, my mind is sort of breaking.
1: Well the moment the, the, the moment the moment that, that the, the moment that Steve Tony Bruce and and Scott arrive in 2012, you've automatically created.
0: A parallel timeline.
1: The, the, the branch the reality. And so okay. everything yeah. is going to be kind of screwed up. Yeah. Of course, we don't know that yet because Bruce hasn't had his uh, conversation with the Ancient One yet. We're getting there. We're getting there. Back on the ground floor, 2023 Tony, disguised as a security guy, shadows his 2012 self, Thor, and Loki as they prepare to exit the building with the Tesseract. Younger Tony, Thor, and Loki are intercepted by a contingent of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents as well as Secretary Alexander Pierce, really the head of HYDRA as I'm sure we all remember. They're there to take custody of Loki and the Tesseract. 2023 Tony, having experienced this event 11 years earlier and knowing it would happen, uses the confrontation to his advantage and has Scott slip into his younger self's arc reactor and cause a minor heart dysrhythmia. 2012 Tony collapses and while everyone is distracted trying to resuscitate him, Thor does it with a tap from Mjolnir. Scott kicks the case containing the Tesseract over to 2023 Tony, who picks it up and is ready to exit the building another way, when Hulk bursts out of the door of the stairwell, clocking Tony and knocking the Tesseract out of its case. It lands in front of Loki, who, amidst all the confusion, grabs it, opens a portal with it, and disappears into it. You know, I didn't know Axe body spray still existed. Even back in 2012. Anyway, I love how they pay. I love how they pay homage to the heist movie in the second act of the film, right down to the part where everything goes wrong.
0: Unfortunately, I will tell you, Axe body spray still exists today in 2022.
1: I <laughs> like how though when, when 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 Tony responds, he does sound kind of guilty, uh, almost like ashamed. Yeah, yeah, I had a, I had a, yeah, I had a spare can in the desk in case of emergencies. Steve is making his way through the building with the scepter all the while trying to get an update from Tony on the missing tesseract. He is about to cross an elevated crossway in the middle of the 14th floor of the building when he encounters... himself. 2012 Cap thinks 2023 Cap is Loki and is prepared to engage him. They fight furiously on the bridge before breaking the glass railing and tumbling down to the ground floor, along with the scepter which falls out of its case. 2012 Cap gets 2023 Cap in a chokehold from behind, and is about to render him unconscious when 2023 Cap is able to muster enough strength to utter, Bucky is alive. Wait, I gotta say it the way he does. I gotta say it the way Chris. Bucky is alive! (laughs) Taken aback by the comment, 2012 Cap releases his grip, allowing 2023 Cap to punch him in the face, grab the scepter, and use the Mind Stone to sedate him. Steve's had some great fights in the history of the MCU, so what better way to carry on that tradition in the MCU's biggest movie than to have Cap versus Cap. I love that initial clash of the shields at the beginning of the fight. And then I also love how, you know, obviously equally matched they are. Because for a while, it doesn't look like either of them is going to win this thing. And it's only twenty twenty-three Cap's experience and knowledge of the future that ends up giving him the edge. And yes, that is America's ass.
0: My favorite part of this scene is when 2012 Cap is like, "I can do this all day," and 2023 Cap is like, "Yeah, I know, I know." <laughs> it makes me laugh every time.
1: It's it kind of I like it because you see over the years you know, how you know how Steve has kind of kind of relaxed, you know, quite a bit. You know, he's well, first of all he you know you know we had we had the we had the language comment back at the beginning of Age of Ultron, and now I mean this movie alone, you know, Cap is cussing like a Cussing like a longshoreman, you know, let's go get this son of a bitch. And, you know, pardon my French, but, you know, when he sees his past self, he's like, oh, you've got to be shitting me. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, 2012 Cap is like, I can do this all day. Cap is almost like, 2023 Cap is almost embarrassed, you know, okay, yeah, I know, I know. I know I said that one too many times. (laughs) Downtown, Bruce's astral projection is losing its argument with the ancient one for taking the time stone. She argues that the Infinity Stones create what we perceive as the flow of time. Take one away, and it creates a new branch reality that is more susceptible to the forces of darkness because of the lack of that stone. Bruce counters that when they are done with the stones, that they can put each one back in its original timeline at the moment it was initially taken, as if it had never left. The Ancient One is still not convinced and affirms that it is the Sorcerer Supreme's job to protect the Time Stone at all costs. If that's the case, argues Bruce, then why did Strange give it away to Thanos willingly? The Ancient One is stunned at this revelation, and it takes her a moment to process it. She then restores Bruce's astral form to his body, opens the Eye of Agamotto, and gives the Time Stone to him. Stephen Strange was meant to be the best of the sorcerers, And therefore, he must have had a good reason to give the stone to Thanos. We already discussed Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One in our review of Doctor Strange, so I don't want to rehash that subject. Suffice it to say, she portrays the Ancient One up until the point of her death in that movie, whether we like it or not. And having said that, it makes total sense that she be in this movie, because, well, they need the Time Stone, and we know that Strange doesn't have it yet at that point. But that does raise one question in my mind. Does this mean that at the point of her death, about four or five years later, that she can recall this conversation with Bruce?
0: What's that Doctor Who quote? Uh, Wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff.
1: Which doctor said that? Was that David Tennant?
0: Uh, I think it was either him or Matt Smith.
1: Okay. I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan.
0: I guess not, though, because this is a different timeline.
1: Uh, True, but... There's nothing to stop Strange from going on his, presumably nothing to stop Strange from going on the path that his life has taken. So I can't see why it wouldn't happen. Well, then again, yeah, then, then again, go back and watch the Doctor Strange episode of What If? <laughs> so on second thought, maybe anything can happen. Aboard Sanctuary 2 in 2014, Thanos and Ebony Maw analyzed 2014 Nebula's memory files, although they're not her memories. Another consciousness is sharing her network, another nebula, and that consciousness carries a timestamp from nine years in the future. They analyze more of 2023 Nebula's memories and find a recording of one of the Avengers' planning sessions where they're discussing the stones. Thanos then orders Maw to continue scouring future Nebula's memories and to set a course for Morag.
0: This is actually really cool. I love the whole idea of the two nebulas not being so separate. Of course, she's more mechanical than organic right now, but it kind of makes me wonder if the earlier versions of everyone else would be able to notice that something was up. You know, if they were given the right set of circumstances. And I guess we see a version of this in the next scene.
1: I guess because of all the weird cybernetic enhancements that have been done to her, there's probably some... There must be some piece of her that Thanos put in there that, that is like super specially tuned to space time what did you say wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff
0: <laughs> but i wonder if 2012 cap hadn't already seen loki pretend to be him if he would have seen that other cap and been like well okay this is the future we did just see aliens maybe there's two me's
1: uh, uh, maybe but they also know that Loki Well no he didn't know that loki escaped did he oh well, maybe he did
0: no i don't he probably think he did
1: he didn't see it but someone must have reported it maybe But again,
0: in the the next scene that we're about to see, there is sort of a version of that. Hmm. Where someone is definitely aware that something's up. Something thinky in the timeline.
1: On Asgard in 2014, Thor's carelessness leads to an unanticipated encounter with his mother, Freya. After several lame attempts to disguise who he is, he breaks down and tells her who he really is and why he's there. She counsels him, telling him that his failure makes him just like everybody else, and that everyone fails at who they're supposed to be. The true measure of any person is how well they succeed at being who they actually are. Meanwhile, Rocket is successfully able to extract the Ether, the Reality Stone, from Jane, but the palace guards are now in hot pursuit of him. He finds Thor, and the two of them return to the present. But not before A, Freya encourages Thor to be the man he is meant to be, and B Thor is able to successfully call the Mjolnir of that time signifying that he is indeed still worthy. So good to see Rene Russo as Freya again and glad that Thor gets a chance to say goodbye to her properly. Her appearances in these movies are brief but she brings a lot of heart to them and I just really I really enjoyed that scene. On Morag in 2014 we relive Peter Quill's arrival to the strains of Come and Get Your Love only this time Rody knocks him unconscious, and Nebula steals his tools so they can break into the temple holding the power stone.
0: So he's an idiot. Yeah.
1: She sticks her hand in the force field guarding the stone and pulls it out, severely charring her artificial left arm and hand. I like that brief moment between Rhodey and Nebula where she looks at her cyborg arm and says, I wasn't always like this. And Rody replies, neither was I, but we work with what we've got. It only lasts a beat but it has a nice emotional resonance to it. It's a it's a great it's great character moments like this that make these Marvel movies so good, I think. Nebula and Rhodey sync up their time GPSs for the trip home. Rhodey blinks out, but Nebula does not. She begins exhibiting the same malfunction as did 2014 Nebula before collapsing. On Sanctuary 2, 2014 Nebula projects 2023 Nebula's memories from the garden including Thanos' beheading at the hands of Thor. Thanos quickly realizes that the Avengers are from the future, and that they're trying to undo something that he's already done in their time. He realizes that he won. 2014 Nebula swears that she would never betray him. Thanos says that she will have the chance to prove it. 2023 Nebula wakes up and realizes what has happened. She runs back to the transport pod and tries to call Clint and Natasha on the Benatar to warn them that Thanos knows, but it is too late as Sanctuary 2 appears overhead and beams her and the transport pod up.
0: Ba, ba, ba.
1: And that is the end of part one of our review of Avengers Endgame. That's a lot of stuff in half a movie. <laughs> Stay tuned for the second part of our review of Avengers Endgame coming up, hopefully, in three or four weeks from now.
0: Hopefully you don't have to wait very long.
1: Uh, We hope not. We hope not. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. Be safe. And we will see you on the other side. Bye-bye, everybody. Oh, you're right. That's an MTV, not an EMG. Sorry.
0: I was about to say I,
1: I just sort of figured it was the the, the hawkeye not, thing a, and I figured you were gonna there. chime That's in. You. It's been a while since I've done this, isn't it? I'm getting senile. That's not good. And it's not
0: even really late too. It's only nine twenty five.